Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 101 of Caro Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. Our guest this week is someone whose music may be more familiar to you than his name, Leo Nocentelli, guitarist for the legendary New Orleans band, The Meters. Let's start with a song he wrote early on, the instrumental Sissy Strut. Released in 1969 on the band's self-titled debut, it was a number four R&B hit and number 23 on the Billboard Hot 100, and it has had a long life since then. Maybe you heard it in various TV promos or in the movie Jackie Brown, or King Richard, or Another Round. The last of those has Mads Mikkelsen blissfully and drunkenly dancing to it. It also has been sampled a lot, including by A Tribe Called Quest, NWA, and Two Live Crew. No Sintelli has delivered many such indelible riffs, including another early single, Sophisticated Sissy, as well as Look Up Pie Pie, the title track to the band's second album, and the hand clapping song from the third meters album, Struttin'. The Meters were a four-piece that came to define New Orleans funk. The other players were Art Neville on keyboards and eventually vocals, George Porter Jr. on bass, and the incomparable Ziggy Modalesti on drums. The four of them had an almost telepathic connection while they dug deep into their grooves. Before the Meters formed in the mid-1960s, Nocentelli already was doing session guitar work in New Orleans, starting at age 14. He played on Lee Dorsey's 1961 hit Ya Ya, as well as, a few years later, Dorsey's Working in the Coal Mine. Working in a coal mine, going down, down, down. Working in a coal mine, he did a fair amount of work with producer keyboardist Alan Toussaint, who would go on to produce most of the Meters' music. The Meters took a break between their first three largely instrumental albums for the Josie label and their higher-profile, more vocals-driven releases for Warner Brothers. Nocentelli composed music for such later tracks as People Say and Out in the Country. But in between those two Meters' incarnations, Nocentelli did something very different. He wrote and recorded a singer-songwriter album inspired by James Taylor. The story of what happened to those tapes and how they recently were released on the album Another Side must be heard to be believed. You'll hear it here. Nocentelli also discusses the first song he ever wrote and why he felt bad performing it in front of his parents, whether he approached guitar more as a melodic or rhythmic instrument, how the meters got their name, the key difference between the songs that he and Art Neville wrote, and what is keeping the surviving members apart. He also revisits the band's session work for artists such as Dr. John, Robert Palmer, and LaBelle. I know you know this one. Nocentelli later played with Peter Gabriel as well, contributing guitar to the songs Digging in the Dirt and Steam from the album Us. You'll want to hear what Nocentelli thinks of Gabriel. Has Nocentelli made more money from the Meter's original recordings or the samples of them? The answer, like many here, is illuminating. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Leo Nocentelli. Yeah, my wife for many years worked at WXRT, which plays a lot of meters still. You'd hear people say on there and uh, and Fire on the Bayou and uh, Sissy Strut. So that stuff uh, that stuff still gets spin, spins in Chicago. Ah, wonderful. Those songs are phenomenal, man. Phenomenal. They get sampled over and over again. They get used in a lot of movies. Oh, yeah. It, it, uh, you know, I didn't know what I was doing when I was writing them, but... It affords me to live out the mailbox, you know, so to speak. You know, I don't have to uh, go out there and rip and run up down the road. I'm right. really thankful for that. Yeah, there was that movie. I think it was an, another round starring Mads Mikkelsen, which is this this movie, uh, like a Danish movie, I think it is. And there's a scene where it's, he's sort of celebrating drinking and he's sort of going on this binge. And the whole thing is set to Sissy Strut and they play like the entire song. But yeah, I, I hear yeah. Sissy Strut a lot now. Yeah, Sissy Strut, you know, it, it, it's been from... Got we licensed it for for different uh, small things. On up to the to the World Series, man. When I heard it on the World Series, that really got me. 
when you learned to play guitar, did you think of it as more of sort of a rhythmic or melodic instrument? Yeah, both. Um, first, of course, rhythmic. You know, when I write songs uh, using the a rhythm pattern, you know. But as that goes on, as the song goes on, there's different breakdowns and certain pickups. Uh, if you notice, every every song, basic song that the meters have done, that's if any substantiation is always there's a guitar pickup a guitar intro right this is strut uh, uh people say everything out in the country all, all of those songs has a pickup a guitar pickup so i usually start with a with a melodic line and then a short yeah, like a, as an intro then i would go into some chord progressions uh, according to whether it would be an instrumental or lyrics lyrics to it you know right but I use I use I use both of them uh, very generously. When you were a kid and you were just picking up the guitar, and I read that you'd played ukulele first. When you started playing guitar, were you thinking about like the kind of songs you would be playing later, or were you thinking more in terms of like you know jazz guys or something like that? When I got a, was prolific enough to play uh, things that I was proud of, I always pictured myself like a Wes Montgomery or, or at, at that time Barney Kessel. Howard Roberts, they were like covers, and they, they were doing their own thing. You know, they were like star guitarists as, as, as individuals. Always pitching myself like that and, and, and playing playing jazz music, of course. Right. And then, um, you know, then you're, after that. You're in New Orleans. That, that's the music in New Orleans. Yeah. After that, man, I got, you know, it's hard to live in New Orleans and not get influenced by the music around you. And you start thinking, uh, after I started writing songs, I think that kind of got me into uh looking at the guitar a little different uh, because I got really interested in writing songs and writing different chord progressions and different funk licks. And, and it kind of changed from jazz into the funk thing. And uh, from what, what people know, people know about the, about the meters, you know, that, that kind of right. stuff. So, what was the first song you ever wrote? Oh man. Wow. <laughs> Believe it or not, it's kind of stuff about it. It's a song called why was I born? <laughs> and believe believe it or not, man, I was I was maybe ten, maybe ten years old, something like that. And believe it or not, I got I never told the story to anybody except my wife. Uh, I got my parents and my sisters all circled around me, and I'm in the middle with a tape recorder singing this song and letting I say, I want y'all to hear this song. It is a song called "Why Was I Born." And, and the lyrics, I remember this, man. The lyric, now, this, now, mind you, my mom and my dad are listening to this. <laughs> now, the, song, the, the lyrics was, um, why was I born without a mother or father to call my own? I was born a, a lonely child since my birth, and I've been roaming, roaming, roaming. But I was born a motherless, motherless child on this earth, and I've been roaming, roaming, roaming since my birth. Wow. Now, imagine me singing that to my parents. I mean, it, it was it was just lyrics and it's in rhyming, but I didn't realize that. Hey, man, you're talking about your parents, and they're right here. You so know, you were you were already you were already thinking about music as something where you're like making stuff up, and it's a story. Yes. And they were yeah. looking at it like our ten year old is singing about not having parents. Yeah, and yeah, not having parents. Why was I born? I was born a motherless child, uh, and that that always struck me funny, man. And it, uh, my wife is the only one I really shared that with. I think well, my sisters and my sisters and my brothers, you know, because uh, some of them were there. But yeah, but this is the first time I'm really uh, repeating that uh, on a on a public basis. Wow, do you still have the tape? No, indeed, <laughs> no, indeed, uh, no. But you know, then I start I started writing songs, man. You know, just just out of my head, you know. And how Sissy Strut came about? We were playing at a club called the Ivanhoe. On Bourbon Street, it was the configure. But this was before it was called the Meters. It was called Art Neville, and the Neville Sounds. And we wasn't even the Meters. And we used to open up a set with a song called "Hold It." And everybody, everybody opened up their set. Every band opened up the set with this song "Hold It." And I got tired of that. And there was a melody in my head that was messing around maybe over a year or so. So I introduced the melody to uh, George Orton Zig. And we started opening up, uh, opening up our sets with the song with the melody. This was before it was, we didn't even have a name for it. And Alan Tucson got, uh, came in, came in well, he used to come check us out all the time and asked us um, if we wanted to record. You know, I was recording with Alan long, you know, long before the meters. 
the first song I did, uh, recorded with Adam was a song called Yaya with Lee Dorsey. Right. You know, working in a coal mine, get out my life, woman, ride your pony. All that stuff was, was I did with Alan. So we went in the studio, man. And the first song we did was a song called Sophisticated Sissy. And we played, we played that. And then we recorded Sissy Strut. Sissy Strut came out on Georgie Records, man. And that song sold, I mean, just jumped off of the, it sold over 250,000 copies within two weeks. Wow. And uh, it was a phenomenal, it was a single. And that was the beginning of uh, of the nightmare. And was that was that credited to the meters then? The song of the writing when Sissy Strut came out because you originally Art Neville and the Neville sounds. Did you were you the meters by the time that single came out? Then there wasn't no no when the song came out. Yeah, we were the meters because we found out we had it was a co op thing. You know, it wasn't Art Neville as the leader and the Neville sound. We all joined together as a group when that song came out because it right. came out as the meters. You know and. Uh, that's the reason why we went in the studio. I mean, Art never had some individual songs out too, but this particular song, this particular track, came out as the Meters, right. all four of us, and that's how the Meters got really started by people knowing this group as, as the Meters. Where did that name come from? You know, music is written in Meters. Sure. And, and people, a lot of people don't know that, but that's what the whole meaning about the Meters, because a lot of people think of parking meter, odometer meter, you know, all kind of. Different, you have that song right off the top of the head, but they don't know that meter that meters is associated with music, also. Sure, yeah. Well, when you have a song, here come the meter men, so yeah, so people, yeah, yeah. and that's sort of a pun on that as well. So people are thinking of someone writing tickets of you know cars that are parked too long or something, exactly, man. So, but but it's it's, it's about music, it's about uh, the, the, the fundamentals of music meters, music is written in different meters. So that's what that means. You were on this, uh, Lee Dorsey track. Yeah. Yeah. Before, like, what were you like 15 or something Then you were in the army after that, you were on these like really early tracks, uh, with him, yeah. uh, working on coal mine was a little later, but like, what was that like? As you could well imagine, I was 14 year old guy. Here's the guy, the biggest producer and writer in the city wanting me to play and, um, heard about me and he wanted me to come do the song, you know? And the first song I did was Yaya. Then he started, started recording other things behind that. But with that, you know, the, the biggest guy he was recording, he had the biggest notoriety was uh, the, uh, was Lee Darcy. So we was doing Lee Darcy track all the time, man, uh, working in a coal mine. Like I said, get out my life, woman, ride your pony, and several others, man. But the, Alan was producing a lot of people. Everything Alan did, he used me on, on them, you know, and different other people. There's a song called Leo. Alan Toussaint uh, singing about you and uh, yeah, and that's no, it's man, awesome. Could, he could have written about anybody. I look at Alan as as like a, a Quincy Jones, uh, uh, David Foster. I mean, producers at at that level, and and this guy is writing a song about me. And it was sort you know, of recent like, too, right? Anybody seen Leo? Which way did he go? He left a funky, funky trail. Taking music higher, setting groove on fire. Funky groove that's heard around the world. He walked the walk. He talked the talk. He lived and breathed music. Coming up with new things like the New Orleans, with the New Orleans thing. All the players know him around the world. He's the meter man. He's the meter man. Yeah, everybody knows Leo. No Chantelle. I mean, this dude is what? What you about? And I, and I saw him about maybe a year before he died. I said, hey, man, I said, I know you cared about me and you respected me because you had me on all, on all your sessions. I said, but I didn't, I didn't know you felt like that about me personally. I, he said, he said, yeah, man, I do. And that just blew me away to this very day, man. I, I just, right. I can't get over that. And he did that song like years after he'd worked with you too. It wasn't like in the moment. It was like, he was sort of reflecting, no. he was like reflecting on like the things that were important in his life and you were one of them. Yes, it was a, a jazz fest gig, and I happened to be in town. I was living in L.A., and um, he was playing, so I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go see Alan. He didn't know I was coming, and I didn't know I was going to see him until I got there, and they said, well, Alan's playing, in the, and that's on the stage. I said, okay, I'm going to go check him out. So I went I went to the stage, and got, went backstage, and all the guys in the group said, oh, man, you heard, you heard about the song, huh? I said, what song? What are you talking about? And when I, when I heard it from the stage, like, he didn't know I was coming, right? And I didn't know I was coming. This right. was going to happen regardless. So after the song, after they, they recorded it live at jazz at the Jazz Fest. So I'm, I'm saying I didn't. And, and when I heard it, I didn't understand anything because I was li listening from the side. I didn't understand. I couldn't hear very well. So after the gig, 
one of the background singers had the, had the lyric sheet singing the background. So I said, let me see it. So she showed me the lyric sheet and I saw, the, I saw the words. I said, whoa. I said, I didn't know he was saying all of that. Then he told me, he said, listen, he said, I'm going to send you a CD of it. And the CD was him. He, he did a CD where the band could learn the song for the jazz fest on, on CD. And he played all of the instruments. He did all of the background vocals. He did the lead vocals and the whole bit. And when I heard that CD, I just literally passed out. How could this guy just write like that? I mean, what, what made him feel like that about me? Because, I'm, you know, I'm just Leo. That's, that's it, man. And right. evidently, he, he thought I was very, very special. And uh, I admire him for that to the day I die. Did you feel at that point that you'd had this career that, you know, you really did a lot of great stuff, but maybe, you know, you hadn't been recognized as much and sort of the, having the affirmation of him come out and sing it, it was like, oh, you know, somebody really appreciated what I did. And it's great to hear that. Uh, no, not really. I didn't think I don't think a lot of people know knew about it. And I don't think he meant it to be exploited like that, where people would know who Leo was. I just think he did that from the heart. Right. And didn't care, you know, what it who heard it, who didn't. He just wanted to do it. And he was one of them kind of guys. He recorded a lot of songs like that, that uh, that he just was personally wanted to record, not thinking of whether Tom, Dick or Harry here or not. He just wanted to put it on tape and recorded it. And I think that's what that song meant. I knew he knew that when he did it, that I was going to hear it some eventually. But um, I don't think that was his main intention. Intentions. I think it was something that it's a work of art that he felt like he wanted to hear. He always looked at his music as art. Yeah. No, I guess I was thinking of it more from, from your point of view, and I'm relating to it as well. I think a lot of artists and writers and you go through life and you're sort of wondering whether, you know, what kind of impact I've had and all of that. And to have someone have something that affirmative and, and positive uh, being declared about you, I just would think would be something that would really be, you know, empowering and just great to hear. Oh, yeah. You know, I play I try to play it as much for people as I possibly could. And a lot of people say, man, that's unbelievable. I mean, that's that's all I could say, man. I saw somewhere that it said that you you backed Otis Redding on something. Was that on a recording or live or is that? No, we were actually on a tour with with Otis. You know, okay. To, when when uh, it was going so far back when we were touring, he would he would be driving in his car on the highway and we'd be in another car and he would pull up on the side of us with the radio blasting the song D's Arms of Mine was his first song. Right. And he's sticking his head out the window, like so happy, like, you know, Jesus, look what's happening, you know, and we know what happened after that. But that's when I first met Otis, started doing some gigs with him. We were kind of like the house band and it was Otis Redding, uh, a couple of other people. I can't even think of the other people uh, that, that was on the tour with us. No, I never played in his band per se, you know, he, he, he was a, he was out by himself and we were the house band. Right. Yeah, he, and he played a lot with uh, Booker T and the MGs, and yes. uh, you know, and then later the Meters got compared to them a lot as sort of like the New Orleansy funky version of Booker T and the MGs. Did you see that band as like peers of you guys? Yeah, yeah. You know, we, you know, I, I listened to them a lot. I listened to what Stacks was doing. I think at that time everybody listened to everybody. Man, I don't think I don't think we was categorized as a funk band. I think we were just categorized as an R&B band. You know, back then it was just R&B. Funk and, and other derivatives from, from that music era, uh, was it was a different characterization than, than it is now. Now we know, now the meters are known uh, specifically as, as funk, as a funk band. That, that, was, that was what we did. But it was like an R&B, right. an R&B band. You know, like, even, and, even, uh, even the stuff that the, the, the MGs were doing at uh, Stack. On stacks. A funk band and, and a New Orleans funk band, because people think there's something real specific about the rhythms you guys had that does not sound like Memphis soul, for instance. Yeah. There's a video that I ran across with uh, LL Cool J and some guy, and maybe you could find it. And I listened to it, I said, whoa, the song came on, the world is a little bit wet under the weather. And, and there's two songs that I wrote that. And uh, uh, I can't think of the name the other the other one, but the first sample well, that was one of the first samples that was played over the radio was LL Cool J "Walking with a Panther" album on the "Walking with a Panther" album, and it was two the meter song that he sampled. And there's a video out now where he's contemplating, he's talking about the meters, and he's talking about those two songs, 
and just rapping over them and saying and giving us all kind of props. You know, the meters is one of a kind, and it, it was just um, the thing. And, and the irony of it, man, we had to wind, wind up suing him to pay us for sampling. That was at the time when when people used to sample different music and music, and they didn't feel like they had to pay nobody. Yeah, you know, and and you, know, you didn't understand that if you sample somebody's artistry. You have to pay for their artistry. You can't make money off of somebody else's artistry. You know what I mean? So I didn't understand that until a few people got sued. But now, you know, there's over 400 some samples or maybe more, either me by myself or either the meters. And uh, it's like automatic. Somebody sample you, they'll, 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 they'll go to the whoever owned the masters and say, listen, we sample these people. We want license to put it out on the record. And um, they do that. The artist that's really prevalent. I wish I could walk around the house, man. I have like 12 or different platinum plaques on the wall. Eminem. Now, some of the samples, you might not even know it. You might not even hear yourself sample. You might be just a little bleak. And, but you still get paid for it because they are that honest where they don't have to worry about nobody suing them. You have groups that try to get away with it. But those groups, if they get away with it, uh, they can't get away with it because they're not selling any records. If they're selling any records, then you would know about it and you would hear about it and you want right. to sue them. You know what I mean? So there's probably people get away with it, but but the, the real majority of the major, the major artists, they don't they don't try to take steal that. They don't try to take nothing, man. Well, not to focus too much on the money, but have you earned more from the samples of your records or from the record sales in the first No place? doubt. No, no doubt. Sam no, no doubt. Samples saved my life. You know, the sampling aspect saved, saved my life, man. Uh, in terms of uh, royalties, you know, and uh, right now the, uh, you know, the masters are uh, maintained by Warner's Warner Brothers. We own fifty percent of the masters uh, now, and we get uh, we get paid royally, you know, every, every quarter. And it's, it's basically from sampling rather than people rather than the record. The record's been stopped selling years ago, you know. Yeah, Jackpot uh -huh. Records in Portland just put out the first three albums on these new, you know, analog only. Kevin Gray, this really great master and engineer, did them. Colored vinyl. A lot of people are buying those. Are you aware of that? And do you get, uh, you know, statements on like, hey, guess what? We got these new great sounding versions of those first three albums. Well, yeah, I'm aware of it. The most um, present thing is, is, the, is the record that I did over 50 years, over 50 some years ago. That's out on vinyl. And it's cut colored. It's the Mardi Gras colored purple, gold, and green. And, uh, you know, since vinyl came out, I, th I think it's a good thing. People are buying vinyl. Th this 50-year-old thing is a phenomenon within itself, man. It's, it's, um, You're talking about I another may, side. I, I could hear yeah, another side called another side and tell a story if you want to. The way it happened, I went after the meters, got three albums. We had three albums on Georgia Records. And um, the label went defunct. Right. It just went out of business. So here it is. We stuck with no record label, so we just no no recording, no nothing. So in that meantime, I started out listening to uh, James Taylor, a lot of James Taylor acoustic stuff because I loved the way he was writing and, and his chord progressions and the lyrics were telling stories. Because when I was writing for the meters, it was all instrumental. There wasn't really no story, you know, lyrics. So I started coming up with chord progressions and writing stories like people like us. There's a story called a uh, MIDI. Pretty Thinking midi. of the day and, and things like that. And uh, I, I started writing um, on, on acoustic, like like the James Taylor thing, um, uh, uh, Sweet Baby James and uh, Mudslide Slim album. So I went in and really got a couple of guys, got some people around to record these songs that I, that I, that I just wrote. And um, I wound up getting some really unfinished tracks, so far as I was concerned. People might think they elaborate track, but they were really unfinished track. It was to the point where I tell an engineer to look, make me a rough copy of a seven and a half inch copy. And I'm um, going to take it home and listen to it and see if I like it, see if I like what I just did. So there was a tape of, of those songs, about eight songs um, that I had. And all of a sudden, the media's got a record deal with Warner Brothers to record five albums. So once we signed that, then I stopped. I, I just forgot about that 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 acoustic record, and I started writing songs for the meters. I started writing all the stuff like the people says and the, and uh, ain't no uses and fire in the body and all that stuff. I started writing stuff hey, like Pocky. that. I forgot about that. So that went along for years. I'd say a decade, at least a decade or two. And um, 
this this tape was stored at C-Sync, which is Alan Toussaint's studio, a seven and a half inch copy. Yeah, he played um, on those recordings too, a few of them. Yeah, he played on a couple of them. Yeah, believe it or not. And George um, Porter, your your the George, George he's on it. And Zig played on one. The guy by the name of James Black, that was a very prolific jazz drummer. He played on them. He played on on the tracks. The tracks and, and the tape were just completely out of my mind for decades. So after Katrina happened, everything got destroyed. So the guy who bought Katrina, after about 30 years after I recorded this stuff, saw these bunch of tapes on the, on the ground, on the sidewalk. So he saw them, and um, he said, look, let's, let's see if the Grammys want something to do with these with these records. It was it was, it was uh, Masters by Lee Dorsey, uh, Ernie Cato, um, Benny Spell, a bunch of stuff. And one and my little, one little lowly tape. So they sent it to, to, to Los Angeles and they, and they put it in the storage compartment. And it stood there for a decade. So it's this box of reel-to-reel tapes, the stuff that didn't get destroyed in Katrina. Like the, in other words, a bunch of the tapes were destroyed and the ones they could salvage, they put in a box and somehow it got shipped to California and put in a storage lot. Yeah. Right? Okay. In the storage. And it's it sat there for over a decade. So maybe longer than that. But about maybe a couple of decades, which is coming up to almost 50 years. So they lost the storage compartment. So when you buy a storage compartment, you buy the storage place and everything that's in it. So it was bought up by a, a swap meet, people putting on swap meets. And um, they had these tapes, so they had the tapes spread, spread all over the table. And a guy by the name of Mike Nikita, who was with, with the Beastie Boys, recognized all the names. And he saw and he saw these tapes, man, and, and he looked at him and he, he brought them all. He brought them all. I don't know what other deal he made with these other people, C Saints with the, who own, own those masters, but I own that one master. And so he said, Leo, he said, call me up. He said, Leo, I have a tape for you. I said, Really? So he started mentioning the titles. So I said, What? I hadn't heard those titles in over 50 years, man. I said, What? You have that tape? He said, Yeah, I'm going to send it to you. So he sent me the tape. With the song on it, the seven inch, seven and a half inch copy. Little did I know he played it for a record label called Lightning Attic Records. Right. So I yeah, so I got the tape and all of a sudden I get a call from these people to ask if they want if I want to make a deal with the seven and a half tape, just like it was. I said he said, so Mike had played it played it for the guy at at Lightning Attic. So they gave me some money, made a deal. The song came out, the record came out in uh, November, November, November the 19th, I think, of last year. And they can't keep the record in the stores. Right. People want to buy it. And there are all these different versions with different colored vinyl. Uh, vinyl Me Please, this record club, they they put out the version that I have, which is the uh, clear black and gold uh, high melt wax. Those are sold out also. The, uh, the pressing company, can't, they can't press them fast enough because during that time it was the COVID and they only was pressing up people like uh, Adele, you know, uh, people that sell. So you have to, they have to record label had to stand in line and wait for months before they could get the pressing done where they could give them to the store to sell. And this is an album that you'd forgotten about that you recorded in like 1971. 71, so, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and you'd forgotten about it and now it's like, you know, in demand. I mean, I, I saw it at, you know, our, the, my neighborhood record store, I go through stuff and they had mm-hmm. various copies yeah. of it and then the copy would be gone the next time I'd be there. And, um, but the, the real deal, real impressive thing was the first check I got, you know, <laughs> I was blown away, man. The first check I got was, was what about 15, $20,000. You know, uh, for for my deal I made with them, and so in order for the artist to get that, uh, that record had to sell a lot a lot of records, man. And I still get checked every every quarter, man, from the sale of that record. What did you think when you listened to that tape for the first time in fifty years? It was like I just heard it yesterday. You know, I forgot all the lyrics and the whole bit, but they came back to me immediately, man. As soon as soon as I, as soon as I heard the stuff, you know, again. You know, it was mind blowing, but but you know, I wasn't I wasn't uh, startled by anything. It just was another, you know, something I did a few years ago. You know, years ago, and I'm hearing it again. The thing that really astounded me is the acceptance acceptance of it from the public. 
Well, the playing on it is beautiful, and it's really different from what people are used to from you. Um, no doubt. You, so the first three meters albums have come out, and those are all these funky instrumentals. And then after that, you got Cabbage Alley and Rejuvenation and Fire on the Bayou, and it's just these sort of classic New Orleans, you know, funk songs with lyrics and you know, sort of pop soul r&b structure funk you know and in between you have this you know these kind of james taylor like beautiful acoustic picking on them and uh and storytelling and vivid language and everything and it's just it's just a different thing yeah well you know i was always mentally uh versatile you know in in terms of you know i used to listen to everything man when i was growing up you know country and western i just had a knack for appreciating what different genres uh, was what, what they were doing. I used to listen to Lawrence Welk, one was one of my favorite TV shows. Okay, so I love what they were doing, and because I, I understood it, and uh, I just uh, musically, I, I, I'm versatile. I could I could write any type of music. I could write orchestrations. I could write uh, about country and western. I could write funk. You know, it's just a thing that's that's, you know, that's well that's in me. Just the way I think. I could think first to write that. Was there a spiritual aspect to? You know, getting that call and realizing this part of your life and this artistic work you'd done still existed. Yes. It's almost like it's almost like getting hit by lightning, but happy lightning. Yes, yes. I equate that to pure spirituality, man. Because that don't happen. You know, a 50-year, I'll put it like this, the oxymoron, a, fi- a brand new 50-year-old hit record. Right. When have you heard that happen? That's That's the only time that has happened that I can remember is my is my thing. So it was a spiritual message, man, that I got. It wasn't of this earth, and that's the way I look at it. I just look at it as it's all it's all spiritual, man. It, it, you know more than the actual song and 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 how good the record is. It was a spiritual it was a spiritual thing, man. And I got a lot I, I got a lot out of that. Violin me please it had rejuvenation as one of their records of the month. And it's this fantastic, you know, again, triple A analog colored vinyl edition of it. They also had a exclusive edition of Fire on the Bayou that also is all analog. So you know, again, 50 plus years after this stuff, well, a little less than 50 years for Fire on the Bayou, but this music is getting yeah. listened to and yeah. bought by people who collect and love great sounding vinyl now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's just phenomenal, man. And, you know, thank God that there's a, those masters. See, when people read, they reissue these, these albums like that, um, they have to get permission from the master owners which is my, the meters and Warner Brothers. So, so when they do that, we still get paid. You know, how, so we still get. So, it's not like they reissue it and they sell them and we don't get a dime. They have to get permission to reissue those things, issue those masters, whatever color it is. And when they do that, they make a deal with the record label to say, "Look, we're going to reissue this. Let's work out some type of." Uh, royalty rate and percentage or whatever and then in turn we get the we still get paid for that and again are the deals that you get now better than the deals you got when you were recording the stuff in the first place i think so i think so especially the meters because the meters they understand the the relevancy of samples they're buying and getting licensed to one of the most sampled groups ever the meters so i think that gives it a certain value other than a typical value Right. You know, yeah, I, I think that makes it more financially lucrative. Like you'd said that Sissy Strut, the original single, uh, sold, I think, 200,000. Um, 250,000. So did that change your life at, the, at that time? Did that, did that you know, boost? Oh, no doubt, man. No, yes. Yes, we, had, we got off Bourbon Street and we started touring, you know. You know, bought a station wagon and put on a trailer. It was another kind of thing. Cause I've never been on the road like that, you know, especially my own thing, too in my own group so yeah it was definitely different um i think that the meters just wasn't we didn't have no manager so to speak to really exploit the group the way i think it was supposed to get man it was we never been exploited the right way you know we used to play these chitlin circuits man the place where you go play in a, in a club in the backwoods somewhere and you have to wear an overcoat to keep warm on the stage you know those kind of places and we didn't have anybody in the agents uh, to, to really, um, you know, get behind the band. I think, realistically, I think uh, we kind of um, destroyed, we had a part in destroying ourselves and destroying the possibility of where this group would go. 
I would sell because you gotta you gotta understand. Here's four guys that musically was so in tune with each other, man. Just looked at each other and we knew what to play. It just it was a magic, man. It just was a magic. But out when those studio doors closed, we were angry. We were we were enemies after that. And when when you can't get together and say, listen, you know, divided, we were always divided. And we were the victim of our own disparities, man. And I think up until this very to this very day, this very second, you know, that's the way that's the way I think everybody feels, man. Even now, there's been opportunities right now. George and Zig and I, I, we could go out there and make all kind of money. The meters, the original meters, please. And um, there's been people coming to us with want to do biographies and documentaries and want to pay us really great money. But being divided as we are, we can't even come to terms with say, man, let's do this and let's make this money. You don't have to like me. I don't have to like you. But let's get together and, and make this money. Let's go out and do this tour and make $100,000 a night, $200,000 a night. People, let's get together and do that. But it's, it's, it's divide, man. We have that, that, that division keep, keeps the meters apart. And I think, I don't know why it happened. I might, some people call it jealousy. Some people call it envy, you know, and and I don't know. Some some sometimes people rather sacrifice themselves rather than see the other guy uh, make some money too. So, what was like the source of this divide? Like, when did that start, and and what 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 was it about? Was it personal stuff or musical stuff? Or I, I don't know, man. I wish I could put my my hand my hands on it. Musically, I don't think that that was a problem because I kind of I handled all of that. The music, you know, so nobody could really you no. Know, we never had any problem musically in the studio, um, but I think a way of business that different business uh, thing where we thought thought about business as individuals. I think it um, it made us uh, separated, you know, separated from each other. Everybody had a way of doing the business as an individual. Musically, we all came together, but as individuals uh, on the business end, we, we were as far as from from here to uh, Japan. Hmm. You, know? you guys, you guys shared songwriting credits too. I mean, my my understanding at least is that you were the primary songwriter, but a lot of those songs are credited to all of you and not just to you. No, no. The, the main writers, man, was Zig and myself. Zig wrote. He wrote a lot. He was a very clever lyricist, and I say this in all my interviews. You know, musically, it was all me because he never played. He already played with drums. Uh, but lyric wise, that Zig wrote the lyrics for People Say. Zig wrote the lyrics for Just Kiss My Baby. Uh, I, the list goes on and on and on, man. But Zig and I, I think, with the predominant writers, uh, Zig from a lyric standpoint and me from a musical standpoint. And and we, I, look, I, all I wanted to hear in the beginning was was myself on the speakers coming back from the speakers, my music that I wrote. I didn't care about uh, getting taking credit, uh, so I just did it, and everybody everybody shared in it, so it did it didn't make a difference. George, in particular, never wrote one song. Not one, uh, uh, but he got credit for, for for all of them. You know, Art was Art had one individual style of writing. He, Art came up like the Mardi Gras thing. You know, that was kind of Art's kind of thing, uh, like the Hey Pocket Wave and stuff like that. And the Fire on the Bayou. It was Art Neville. I don't think it was an envious thing because I just think that it was a certain dislike. To be honest with you, if you could believe that, God make God making that kind of music can't stand each other. Mm. But that does that do exist, man. So did that become hard, make it hard to tour together or to record together or all of the above? Basically the tour, basically the tour together. And, and even down to making decisions about contracts, you know, coming up with managers and making sure we, we approved of the same guy because everybody wanted, wanted something different, including myself. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not excluding myself as to one as a person that really uh, clean and, you know, they did this and I didn't do nothing. No, I was just as so much a part of, of what's going on now as, as they were. But one thing different, I realized it. I recognized it. I recognized that I was wrong about certain things. And um, if if anything could be salvaged from that, I think I'm, I'm the first one in line to do it. I'm the first one to go, hey, man, let's do this. Let's go. Let's go do a tour. Uh, let's let's go in the studio and record again, man. I'm the first one. I'll be opening the door to the studio if it was me.
honor of Antihero being Illinois' number one IPA yet again, Revolution Brewing is holding the sweepstakes. If you find a gold MVP in your 6 or 12 pack of Antihero IPA, you'll get a roster spot on the new Antiheroes franchise. Prizes include an official contract with the Antiheroes and photo op at the brewery, exclusive team merch, an Antiheroes team pint glass, a $100 Revolution Brewing gift card, and invitations to franchise IPA events. Go to RevBrew.com. You guys worked with Alan Toussaint for a long time, and he produced the first, what, like seven records or something like that? In the beginning, uh, we recorded a lot of stuff, like the Lady Marmalade with Patti LaBelle, yeah, Robert Palmer, and, and uh, we did uh, Dr. Joan Wright play at the wrong time. We did all that together. But after those three main albums, uh, that we stopped using the whole band. And basically, he stopped using everybody but me. I knew that you you guys backed Robert Palmer on Seeking Through the Alley with Sally, that album. But I didn't realize you guys did Lady Marmalade, because that was a major Oh, song. yeah. Yeah, we did actually Lady Marmalade and Phoenix. That was the last two albums that uh, LaBelle, the group LaBelle, did before Patty went and did on our solo career. And then after that, I played on our first solo record. She flew, I have a song called uh, I Think About You that she, on, on her first solo record, I Think About You, is it, under Michael Michael Nocentelli. You know, I, matter of fact, that was the first song I played keyboards on, man. And uh, David Rubinson produced that. And I did our next two albums after the first solo albums. And then we kind of like this is sort of we kind of lost track of each other after that. So on those meters records, how much did Alan Toussaint shape the way you guys sound versus capture the way you sound because he played so no much way. together already? None, 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 nothing. Alan was was in the studio with us for actually all eight albums about twenty minutes. Hmm. But you know, and, and he stood out because he understood. He, he saw like I had to drive to do it and we kind of were like self-contained and it was very big of him very understanding of him even though he was we were signed to him as a as our producer he wasn't never in the studio with us and the, the, i give him credit for that because he just felt like what was happening was good enough he didn't want to interfere with anything musically that that we were doing and he backed off so the way I look at it is not a desertion or anything like that. I look at it as something that was very uh, smart, smart man. So look, I'm going to just back off. Even though I'm your producer on, on paper, you guys, you guys go on and do it uh, musically like you want to do it. Because I, I can't, I'll probably be a hindrance. I mean, he didn't literally say that, but I could see that was big, very big of him. Because that, that's the way I took with, with the, his departure of being in the studio with us. Yeah, I would assume that his name would help you guys just in terms of credibility because he was such a big guy down in New Orleans. And also you had the studio, which was his studio, right? Well, he got it. He got it anyway. He was down as our producer. That's yeah. what I'm telling you. Producer and on paper, but not in musically. Right. He stood out the studio when we came in. When there, when there was time for us to record an album, he was not there. So who was like in charge of what the song sounded like? Me. I'm not uh, braggadocious or whatever. I'm just telling you like it is. Right. All those guys looked up to me, especially when we did the Warner Brothers thing. I go to the studio, see something, and they would all three be in there waiting for me to come to tell them what to play. The song that I've written and for me to show them the song that I wrote. Did you ever argue and say, you know what, I should, I should get like the publishing on this and these, you know, I wrote the song and I don't need to share it with the four, three of you. I mean, you know, I mean, there are bands that are successful in part. Uh, I mean, like on the rock side, like REM, they always shared all their songwriting credits and never yeah. revealed. The Commodore. Who wrote what. Lionel Richards got, got, got credit for the stuff that he did, but it was still the Commodore, but he took the credit because it was his song and he produced it and whatever. I didn't do that. Why? And if I would have known the, the, the no gratitude, there's, there's no gratitude for that from, from those guys. If I would have known it was going to be like this, I wouldn't have done it. You know, and uh, it wasn't about the money. I would share it, I would share it for anybody. I'm, that's exactly what I did. There's a song that I wrote called Out in the Country. Right. It was, um, I think it was the third album we did for Warner Brothers, I think. And I wrote a song called Out in the Country. 
And uh, when I played, when I when we did it, you know, I said, "Look, man, I'm 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 gonna take credit for this song because one of my personal songs. It was about my me going out to the country in Laplace, going to visit my grandmother and and all them people. So those guys, when we recorded it, a great track came out. Just Cyril sung it, and but they went they went behind my back and uh, went to the guy Marshall Sehorn was his name and said, "Listen." We don't want. We're not going to let the song go on the record. We don't want it because we, we Leo is not giving us credit for it. So Marjorie came to me and said, "Look, Leo, that's what they say." I said, "Listen, man. I said the song got to be heard. I'll give him credit for it. Just let the song get done." Right. That's how those guys felt about me. It's the first song on Fire on the Bayou. Yeah, out in the, out in the country. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. and all those and all those songs are credited to like the whole band. So there's no solo band. credit, but yeah. that was your song. Yeah. The whole band. Oh. Yes. A lot of people don't know. Uh, we did a song called Funkify Your Life. You ever heard that song? Mm-hmm. It's on a New Direction that record uh, with David Rubinson produced. Uh, that's me playing bass on Funkify Your Life. Not George. But George, well, it, George, I think George got credit for it. George knew it. George could not slap a bass. He could not do the, the popping thing. But it was back in the game, you know. So I had to put. I said, "No, man, uh, don't don't play. I need I need the popping sound." So he said he couldn't do it. So I said, "So I took some electrical tape, black electrical tape, put it on my thumbs because you know, being a guitarist is like virgin thumbs, man. My thumb would have just blistered up. So I put the tape around it, and uh, I played it, slapped it, and if you hear Funkify Your Life, that's me on bass. You can see it's a completely different style than George Porter, right?" At what point did you feel like the meters hit their peak as a musical band? I don't know, man. And I, I don't know. It's kind of hard to say because every gig you play, you feel like that's the best one. You know, I don't know. I don't think the meters ever peaked, to be honest with you. Which which period do you like going back to more? The the instrumental period or the singing period? The instrumental period, uh, I think I like because it was it was less complicated and it was less division and. Um, it was a bit freer, you know, after a while, things got kind of complicated with the Warner stuff and, you know, everybody started getting selfish and whatever. But like I said, we are victims of our own demise just as much as the business. Cause this is a shrewd business, man. This is a cesspool of a business. Okay. The music industry. I've been fortunate enough to live long enough to be able to overcome it and um, go through all the shit and um be able to be able to survive you know but and, and i feel fortunate of that but it's really a really cutthroat business man it really is i'm one to tell you that i know i'm not making this up you know first person really started advocating it was with prince you know prince every interview he had was about the music business man what they did you know what they did him prince went in the studio and recorded you know a masters five or six masters on his own in his house Right, and he didn't realize what the music industry, the, the, the contract that he signed was that. So when he went to the record label and said, "Listen," he just said, "Well, we want you to record." He said, "Look, I already recorded them. I got the masters. I own the masters, and I got them already done." They said, "No, you don't own no masters. We own them." What do you mean? Well, see this, see this on this on this paper here. Well, we own the masters. You know, we want all the masters, man. We we, we you know, so we'll pay you for them. But we own them. So the majority of that stuff with the Prince recorded was recorded in his house. But when he went to the records label to put it out, they wind up owning the masters. And, he, and, and they, they paid him for, for them. They didn't pay him what he was supposed to, but they own it. They own the masters. The difference between getting paid for a master and somebody owning it. Right. No, and that, that was when he was not Prince for a while and then finally came back to it, but but that was the whole... That's why he called himself Slave. He got tattooed Slave on, 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 his, that. on his... Yeah. So, you know, this is a really bad business, man. You know, even though, I mean, the rappers kind of changed it because they kind of took things in their own hand and they were all gangsters, man, and they wouldn't... Hey, man, you're trying to mess, you're trying to mess me around. I'm going to put some pain on you. So they, everybody got... You know, they're getting paid, man. People like the Dr. Dre and... uh the Jay-Z and all these people, they're getting paid because they knew the people that had kind of paved the way, people like like the meters and, and other people's friends and everybody, people that kind of paved the, paved the way uh, for them is is they, they could see it. So just the way it is, okay, we got to change, change it. We got to change this thing. 
And and uh, it's all because of the way, the way they saw the, the people, the predecessors before them, you know, how they got treated. So they say, we ain't going to do that. So the, the last Meters album was New Directions, is, was the one you mentioned from 1977. Mm-hmm. After the meters broke up, did you sort of keep on your own writing songs and, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I have songs uh, that I wrote, you know, that's uh, by, by ZZ, at that time, ZZ Hill, Joe Cocker, you know, recorded one of my songs. Uh, like I said, Patti LaBelle right. uh, recorded on, on that. I think about you, Robert Palmer. You know, it's about eight major songs, man, that, uh, that did pretty good. Albert King. I got the blues. I saw in your credits that you were on the Peter Gabriel album, Us, and you played on the song yeah. Steam and Digging in the Dirt. As a matter of fact, Peter is, um, I have a new record that you don't even know about, man. It's, it's, a, it's a collaboration, not a collaboration, but I wrote songs for all these people. The duets, it was a, me and Peter Gabriel, and it's a record, man. It's, it's not out getting, trying to get a deal now. Peter wanted to give me a deal with this record on his label, um, Real world. Cool. Peter did a duet with me, Peter Gabriel and myself, Kirk Whalem and myself, George Duke and myself about eight months before he died, Harry Connick Jr. and Alan Toussaint and myself, Stanley Clark and myself, Trombone Shorty and myself. All these are different records on this, different songs on this one record. Anyway, Peter, since you brought up Peter, I'm negotiating with Peter now for a deal with that because he's on it. And uh, he's coming to uh, Austin in October. So uh, I'm going there. I'm going there just, you know, just, just to be a guest and to hang out with him. But I'm hoping that, and I heard that they're doing it, digging in the dirt on the, right. on the new tour that he's doing. So I'm hoping that, because uh, he knows I'm coming, I'm hoping that he called me to do the, do the song with him when he do the gig in, uh, in Austin. Nice. Were those, were those fun sessions to be on? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it was weird, man, because uh, Daniel Lenoir produced it, and they called me up, man, about oh man, about ten o'clock at night. They said, Look, Leo, that's when he had the studio in New Orleans. He said, "Come on out, man. I want you to do a couple of songs." It, I didn't even know what Peter Gabriel. I said, "Okay." When I got there, it was Peter. So they played "Digging in the Dirt," and actually, the melody is the the line I played. Peter got the melody from the line I played on the guitar. Jumping, breathing. Broken staircase. Got to go. That's the line I played. So he didn't have the lyrics on there yet. You were just hearing no, the you were just hearing the track. No, 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 not at all. I just got the I just heard the track. And um I'm I mean I'm flattered, but yeah, but yeah, but that's where that came from. But Peter, you know, Peter is un, 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 what a beautiful person, man. And he's just um he just is, is a fantastic guy, man. And very generous and, um, you know, loves me. And any, anybody that think that highly about me, uh, I have to think very highly about them. Well, that's good. He seems like a good, I, I'm always happy when someone who seems like he's a good guy actually is a good guy. He is, he is authentic, man. I went there and, um, when I sent him the track, uh, and the lyrics, he sent me the thing back with his vocals on it. And I said, Whoa, Without me, you know, without me actually being there for put for him putting those vocals on, you know, I had I had a little rough thing, you know, but the actual intricate parts was him, you know. And uh, when I said, "Wow, man," so I, I went over there uh, about last year, and uh, for him just to hang with, with him, and, and I, it was a keyboard bass that he played on it. And it had a studio, real world, and he hooked me up and gave me a cabin. He has a big, I mean, it's a big like place man real world and it's like got the cabins and uh got the restaurants and uh eating play the cafeteria and they got the studio it's it's, it's like a compound you know and, uh, it, yeah man it was really 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 great as a matter of fact when he got inducted in the rock and roll hall of fame uh, a couple of years ago i played on that with him uh, you know stuff like that you know like yeah i'm i'm, I'm a songwriter that's, that's what i've always been I mean, I've been that. I'm a guitarist, too. Yeah, because there's some people who will write only when they have a project, and there's some people who write because that's what they do. They write. Yeah. If I hear something, I'm going to write it. I'm going to put it down. I'm going to do a demo on it or, or whatever. But I'm, I'm always writing, man. 
But, you know, I'm always going to write songs. I'm still writing songs. I'm writing two songs now for, I wonder, I think, one of the baddest dudes, out, not one, the baddest guitarist out there. I mean, so far as I'm concerned, undoubtedly, the baddest dude out there right now. And, you, and his name is Eric Gales. Okay. You know you know who that is? I don't. I'm going to check it out. So you don't even know who he is. Eric no. Gales. And he's a black guy. He's a guitarist and, and a singer. They, they call him a blues act, but he does everything, man. His guitar playing is impeccable. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal, man, some of the things that he does. And, uh, you know, he and I met last year, and we got to be uh, friends, and uh, and then he knows who I am. And so I'm, I have two songs that I'm hoping that he likes coming out here to play, and I'm going to introduce the song to him. So, yeah, I'm constantly writing stuff for different people color the color of your skin has a lot to do with everything man with in every aspect of this of any kind of business that you're in um be it uh, uh especially in music man you know you could be you could uh, if if you're white and you could play like in a great player that's one thing but if you're black and you play like eric gale you you have to go to the change he's on the road He's on the road now, man, traveling, driving this sprinter, you know, on a, on a fucking road, you know, and he's one, he's, it's, it's a shame, you know, and I, and I tried to tell him that, you know, I passed that threshold. I went through all of that, but I'm past that in terms of, of doing it again. You know, I'm not going to ever do nothing like that. And uh, I, my thing is to educate, is to educate people. It's a, it's a saying that I learned, not learned. I've always was like this, but it's, it's a, it's a thing that I've, I'm going to leave you with this. This is, this is the whole synopsis, man, of my life and the way I think. And it was a statement shot by a lady by the name of Maya Angelou. And she said, and I'm going to get a tattooed on my neck. Just what I'm about to tell you. Okay. She said, when you get, give. And when you learn, teach. That's it, man. And I'm a giver. I'd rather give. I get more pleasure out of giving. That's why all those songs we credited them do. Because I get pleasure out of that. And when you do that, when you give, man, it's like you might not. Now I'm selfish. Now I want. I want. I want my blessings. I want. I want. I want. I want something in return. You know, I want to get blessed. If I give something, I want to get blessed. However, your blessings might not come directly to you. It might come in the form of maybe your child surviving cancer or your mother whoever surviving some kind of illness, or you not getting ill, or your wife might might be getting better with, with her situation. It, your, your blessing, you might not never see the right. blessing that you given because you gave, but you know it's there, so you keep giving. You know you're getting the blessings. And uh, I, I, I live like that, man. And, and, and the part about teach, when you learn, teach, that's what I try to do. I try to teach everybody anything that I've learned in this business. If they want to listen, I'm here. I'm the Bible, man. When it comes down to business, I'm, I'm the Old Testament. I'm the New Testament. I'm the Saint King James Version. I'm the Mormons. I'm the Jehovah's Witness. I'm the Quran. I'm the Bible of everything. I mean, I've been through it all. So if there's anything I could pass on to anybody, you could call me. That's it for episode 101 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Leo Nocentelli for being so candid and insightful about the great music he has created. You can learn more about Leo at his website, leonocentelli.com. Another side, his excellent long-lost solo album from 1971, is available from Light in the Attic Records on CD, cassette, and black and tricolor vinyl. Go to lightintheattic.net for more information. Jackpot Records in Portland, Oregon has released the first Three Meters albums on colored vinyl, cut from the original analog tapes by two-time Carol Pop guest Kevin Gray. Go to jackpotrecords.com. And Real Gone Music has released A Message from the Meters, a remastered 3LP 40-track compilation of the band's singles for Josie, Reprise, and Warner Brothers. Go to realgonemusic.com. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake. People say... He's really good. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow Caro Pop on Twitter and Instagram at Caro Popcast. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. 
Also visit carolpop.com where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming episodes and events. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop Conversation. Thanks.